You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Well, thanks be to God indeed for that. Thanks for reading, Mason. Uh, It's good to be with all of you this week. Uh, I've heard from many of you how uh, needed and encouraging Colossians has been for you this week. It certainly has been for, for me. Uh, if, if I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. Uh, I'm really looking forward to someday shaking your hand for the rest of you. I can't wait to just someday give you a big old fat hug. Uh, there's, like, there's an old video floating around the internet right now of Chris Farley coming in onto David Letterman's show as his Matt Foley character. And he comes in from the back of the theater like completely crazy and wild and pulling his pants up and chest bumping and high-fiving with those in the audience doing cartwheels and just totally excited about life. And this is going to be me uh, the first Sunday that we're back together. It's going to be, I think, for all of us. Well, uh, last week we introduced Paul's short letter to this young church in Turkey, in Colossae, and we considered in the first eight verses how thankful Paul was for the very specific faith in Jesus that they had as the fulfillment of God's promises uh, and the fulfillment of his work in the universe, of his thankfulness for the Colossians' practical love for one another and for their enduring hope, not in good circumstances, but in the age to come. And these are the things that Paul was thankful that God had already done in their lives. But this week, in verses 9 through 14, we're going to now consider the things that Paul would then turn his future expectation toward. The ways in which he is praying that God would continue to shape, continue to form them. So for Paul, the the Christian life isn't just about coming to a one-off moment of having your sins forgiven forgiven, and then just moving on with your life. Like some kind of contractual agreement with God in which you sign here, here, and here. You present two forms of ID and then great, we'll just pass this application along to HR or something. No, for Paul, the Christian life is exactly that. It's an entire life. It's a new life. It's a transformed life. It's a life that is full, that is fruitful, and free. And these are the three categories that we're going to think through tonight in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. A life that is full, fruitful, and free. A full life, a fruitful life, and a free life. So let's first think about a life that is full. And so, Paul says in verse 9, from the day that we heard... That is, from the day that Paul and his homies, wherever they are in prison, they had heard of the Colossians' repentance and their new faith in Christ. He says that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul has already been overwhelmingly thankful for what God has done very practically in their lives, but now he's praying for even more. He prays first that they would be filled up with knowledge and with wisdom and with understanding, now, this doesn't mean that he hopes that they'll, every single one of them will all get advanced theology degrees or something, uh, that they will have read all of the classic works of systematic theology and deep doctrine. Apart from these early letters that were beginning to circulate, written works of crystallized Christian theology didn't exist yet. What did exist was the scriptural scrolls that would have been at the local synagogue, what we'd call the Old Testament, And Jewish influence and possibly even the role of the synagogue is actually going to keep coming up over and over again throughout this letter of Colossians. But if you weren't with us last week, in the year 61 or 62, we're not quite sure, the entire city of Colossae 
was completely leveled by an earthquake. So there is precious little that remains there today for us archaeologically. But we do know from census records and temple tax records that there was already a very sizable Jewish population in this entire river valley. And so these Christians, these early Colossian Christians, would have had access to the Jewish scriptures. Many of them, coming from a Jewish background themselves, would have grown up knowing and memorizing these Jewish scriptures. And so Paul is praying that they would be filled the same kind of language that we saw in Exodus, that the tabernacle craftsmen were filled by the Spirit to do the very work of God. And then we saw in Exodus, not just, not that just a couple of individual people were filled with the Spirit, but then the tabernacle, which was in the midst of the entire nation, was filled with God's presence. And so here, Paul is praying that they would be filled in the same way. They would be filled with knowledge of his will. That is what what God wants from them, what he desires from them, which obviously means that God does want and desire something from his people. Not that they continue to live and to walk in a way that they decide what is best, but in in a way that God decides. And he prays, Paul does, that they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom, or literally, that they would be filled with wisdom of the Spirit. And they would be filled, lastly, with understanding. Now, there's a, there's a reason why Paul lists all three of these, knowledge of his will, wisdom of the Spirit, and understanding. They're all very similar, but they're all different. They're all nuanced in different ways. If we could put this in like Garden of Eden categories, understanding might be the understanding of knowing the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just a, a knowing of the command, an understanding that this command is there. Knowledge of his will might be then taking that simple understanding of the command and then understanding why God would command that. Like a knowledge of the will of God, why he would give this command. That it's good to be in a place of trusting dependence of God for wisdom. That God has, that he is abundantly generous and he is not withholding anything good from me. And that obedience to God puts me in a place of greater joy because of my increased communion with him and because of steady relationships with others. These are good and a knowledge, an increasing knowledge of, of God. And then, hopefully, then God gives a wisdom of the Spirit that is animated, guided, and dependent on the Spirit. Wisdom of the Spirit is the foresight, the ability to make decisions that lead to good outcomes, the application of this knowledge and understanding, the foresight and understanding that taking the fruit of this tree will bring wreckage and carnage in my life. So I'll walk past this tree in faith and then find greater satisfaction in the fruit of all the other trees that God has provided. So how are the Colossians going to get all of this? How are they going to get all this understanding and knowledge and, uh, and the wisdom of the spirit? How is God going to fill them in this way? Well, if understanding is the first step, don't eat the fruit, then they must first actually know what God has commanded, that he has actually brought commands for their lives. And how will they know that? Well, they'll have access to and then deep reflection and meditation on his word. Many people throughout history have made all sorts of commands for the Christian's life uh, that God has actually not commanded or have minimized commands that God has commanded. What has God commanded? Now, these Colossian Christians wouldn't have had access to personal Old Testament scrolls, but many of them would have had the whole thing or at least major portions of it memorized. Others or other maintained and memorized teachings of Jesus would have already been circulating at this time. 
What they would have never dreamed of is a finalized and completed canon of scriptures before and then after the coming of Christ, before and after the cross of Christ like we have today. Certainly, they would have never dreamed of a completed canon of scriptures that they would have had daily personal access to, to read and meditate on. We are in a, just a wealth and an abundance of the access to the, to the scriptures these days. Certainly, they would have never dreamed of the smorgasbord of deep and rich theological reflection and teaching and the amount of incredible books of doctrine and theology that we have available today. A full Christian is one who understands God. Or put it another way, our love for God will never surpass our knowledge of God. While many of you are busier in this quarantined life than you've ever been, most of us likely will have more time available today than we'll ever have to read, to study, to reflect, to know God, to be filled with an understanding and a knowledge and the wisdom of God in this time. I've already heard from a handful of you who are already beginning to try to memorize this entire book of Colossians. Do it! This is great! But of course, mere knowledge is not the goal of the Christian life. Then we need the miraculous work of the Spirit to work it in, not just under the skin, but like into the bloodstream that we are animated, guided by, dependent on the Spirit day by day and minute by minute. But for what? For what? Just to know what God wants for our lives? No, Paul goes on to pray that they would not only have full lives, but they would have fruitful lives. Secondly, lives that are fruitful. Paul prays for this knowledge and wisdom and understanding so that, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul is praying that the Colossians would be filled so that they might be fruitful. To keep our Garden of Eden thing going here, as God's like delegated sub-rulers, as his temple workers in the world, Paul is praying that they would be filled with this knowledge and understanding and wisdom of God. And then that, that by eating the fruit from the tree of God's wisdom, the, the fruit from the tree of eternal life, they actually might become those trees. They might become the fruitful Psalm 1 trees that we considered a few weeks ago. Just teeming with life and a blessing and provision for the world around them. We're going to see in just a minute that there is no amount of holy or wise living that can make someone fully right before God. The reality is that none of us are the Psalm 1 tree that God has created us to be. The reality is that we are all on this side of daily choosing the fruit of our own wisdom. We daily look and see things that we think are desirable and we take and we eat and we bring all sorts of thorns of curse into our lives and relationships. And yet those who have been united by faith to Christ in his resurrection life, we can now actually live lives in such a way that are worthy of Christ's love for us and that are fully pleasing to him. Now this may sound like Paul is encouraging a righteous life that comes from our good works, that we achieve some righteousness, we achieve some manner of worthiness because of our lives, but that's not what he's saying. 
Now, in getting to know many of your stories, many of you grew up in traditions or in cultures in which you felt the the demanding and never satisfied weight of legalism on your shoulders. If you didn't live or you didn't do or act or speak in a certain way, you were afraid that God would never be pleased with you. Just do all the right stuff and avoid all the wrong stuff and you're good to go. But the problem is you've never felt good to go. The gospel of grace was minimized and you constantly felt unworthy of the love of God. And so passages like Isaiah 64 actually brought some like pendulum swinging comfort. Like all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so you were comforted by the fact that, well, you know what? Like my life of unworthiness is actually okay because Jesus's worthiness is given to me. Or Paul in Philippians 3, considering his spiritual resume to be rubbish. And then we come to the, these verses and these passages and we come out on the other side of these considerations, calling ourselves gospel-centered or Christ-centered, saying things maybe even like I have from the pulpit that lack nuance. Something like, the only reason that God is pleased with me is because he is pleased in Christ. Which, if not clarified, and then gets taken to its furthest implications without much theological reflection, is then the conclusion that what I do today, how I live or how I think, ultimately doesn't matter at all because Jesus has lived and died for me. Now, there are maybe a few of you who are squirming a bit right now. Like, the way that Sherman just is talking right now makes me think that what he's about to say is all of that is wrong. Like, I thought Christ Church was gospel-centered and that all of the time they are emphasizing the finished work of Christ. Well, we are and we do. I just want to be careful with some phrases like the only reason that God is pleased with you is because he is pleased in Christ. Because right here in Colossians 1, Paul says that he is praying that the Colossian Christians would live lives fully pleasing to God. The context of Isaiah 64, the context of Philippians 3, that of filthy rags and rubbish, These are folks who are trying to earn their right standing before God through sheer determination. Not only that, but it's a misguided determination that lacks love for God, that lacks love for their neighbor. And if that's the case, then building and depending on that kind of resume is a filthy rag. It is rubbish. It is repugnant to God to try to earn earn the favor of God. But the children of God those who are adopted, who are loving their family, loving the family identity of being a child of God, out of love for their father, out of gratitude, and even a desire for greater joy, now seeking to walk in obedience, to honor him with their hearts and hands, God God is not displeased with this. In fact, it does please him. A somewhat well-known word picture would be that of like my five-year-old bringing me a picture that he's been coloring He hands it to me. And then what kind of a wicked father would I be if I wadded up this picture and threw it out and said, filthy trash, rubbish. Come here, let let me show you some real art. Like, look at this Renoir. Look at this Caravaggio. This is art. This is perfection. Whatever you just gave to me, that is trash. Keep trying, but ultimately we all know you're never going to be Renoir. No, like I, I would take this picture that he's colored for me. I would see it riddled with imperfection, completely lacking in any kind of intricacy or detail. But he's made it for me because he loves me and I am well pleased. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying as long as we just try to please God, then he'll be pleased. Like I can bank on my imperfection. I can just every now and then, maybe once a week, try to indicate to God that some amount of effort is coming on my behalf and then he'll be pleased with me. Now, this is, this is like a, an orphan putting forth some minimal effort toward a potential adoptive parent in the mere hope that an occasional token of love will, be, will result in adoption. We first need the finished work of Jesus on our behalf that was fully pleasing to the Father to then make us sons or daughters by faith. We must remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. It is not a result of your coloring pages that are just so awesome so that no one may boast. Like that is a gospel-centered verse that is memorized everywhere. It is the grace of God, the work of God that makes sinners clean, that makes sinners and orphans, sons or daughters. But let's not forget the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the thing. Verse 10 is a gospel-centered verse too. Because the good news of the gospel isn't just that God has come to forgive us of our sins and then leave us in our sins. The good news of the gospel is that he has come to transform the entirety of our lives. The gospel doesn't find its beginning and end in justification, in making sinners right before God through the forgiveness of sins. That's just the beginning. The gospel finds its beginning in justification and then it keeps on going into sanctification, that of God making Jesus' people to live and to love and to act more like him. And then it finds its end in glorification, completing the work. Whereas we said before, justification removes the penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the power of sin. And glorification removes the presence of sin. That is a transforming and a fruitful gospel. And so, if it's God's good desire to move his people... Um, to move his people out of love for themselves and into love for him and for others, out of selfishness and into selflessness, out of self-worship and into God-worship, out of self-wisdom and into divine wisdom, out of unholiness and into holiness. If that's the ultimate move that he desires for his people for eternity, then Paul says some small and incremental moves now are pleasing to God. And what happens when we do? What happens when we begin to walk more in a worthy manner of the love which Christ and the life which Christ has called us into? What happens when we do? Well, the rich get richer. The second half of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Like a month ago, Amazon was already one of the most profitable businesses in the world. And then the pandemic circumstances have made them even more profitable. The rich get richer. And so it is here. It's like a spiral staircase. Paul is praying that they would have greater knowledge and understanding of God and that they, they might walk in a, in a manner worthy of Christ, that they might begin to bear fruit. And then what happens? They increase in the knowledge of God, that they might bear fruit, which then increases in the knowledge of God, that might bear more fruit, which then all leads to being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. The Christian life isn't 
just a momentary decision to take the red pill, to make some decision, see the world in a different way, but then go on with your, with your life. It is a lifelong journey, a race that needs the power of God to bring endurance and a patient joy to the end. So Paul is praying that the Colossians wouldn't seek an independent, doggedly determined quest of holiness on their own, but pursue deeper life in the very God who will transform them into fruitful trees and then sustain them to the end. The gospel of God comes to bring full and total transformation, lives that are filled, fruitful, and now thirdly and lastly, lives that are free. If God would answer Paul's prayer and accomplish all that he's asked for so far, he then prays that they would, the Colossians, verse 12, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So if we were tempted toward thinking that Paul is hoping that the Colossians would earn their way into God's favor by living lives that are worthy of God's favor, now Paul is giving us the needed balance uh, for our understanding of what Christ has done, the fullness of the gospel. If we're being deeply honest, this word qualified, this word qualified, perhaps maybe we might not even realize it, but is like a stinging word. It, it perhaps brings to the surface one of our deepest American fears. Of course, uh, in thinking about the next job interview, we think about qualifications, perhaps Some of you have already lost your job or you are fearful for a loss of job and you're already thinking towards your next job interview. You're thinking about what you can add to your resume. You're thinking about perhaps one of the most terrifying questions that a potential employer might ask you. What makes you qualified for this job? What are your qualifications? And of course, you hope that you've got enough. You hope that they are impressed enough with your qualifications. But even more than a potential job interview, perhaps a more low-level, constant game of subconscious comparison is thought of, is brought to the surface when we're thinking about qualifications. Like you might be thinking like, well, at least I make better grades than her, or I don't make more money than him. I'm prettier than her, but oh shoot, not more than her. I have a bigger house than him, but oh shoot, like not as big as him. I think I'm funny. I think I'm interesting enough to fit into this circle or to have a conversation with this person. But what if I'm not? What if I'm not qualified? And behind all of these comparisons is a fear of not belonging. Placing ourselves constantly, minute by minute on a measuring stick, a subconscious like U.S. News college rankings list knowing who's ahead of me and who's behind me in a thousand different arenas, just hoping and praying that in the end, I'll be liked and accepted by the most amount of people as I can, which is just exhausting. Constantly moving towards those who are ahead, constantly keeping ahead of those who are behind. Instead, Paul prays that the Colossians would give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What are your qualifications? Our subconscious resume builder screams out all of the reasons we have to be acceptable, and then we just hope that they're enough. But the gospel sings, knowing that Christ is enough. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, 
my song. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We are not qualified. But for those who would ride in on Jesus' coattails, God gives the inheritance, the inheritance belonging to his son, that of receiving God himself, his full presence living with his people, to his people, to his saints, verse 12, the ones whom he has qualified through Christ, that they all share. They all share. It's not a a zero-sum game. Like, if you get the job, then I don't. Or if you're better than me, then I am left behind. If you're prettier or more athletic or more or smarter than I, there's a winner and there is a loser, but not with this inheritance. The inheritance of God that his people then bask and dwell in together, now fully freed from performance. They're now just together resting in love. In love for God and what he has done to qualify them together and now in love for one another as they are now freed from comparing themselves. And why? Well, verse 13, because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is, this is Exodus language again. Deliverance and redemption from one kingdom to another, from slavery to freedom. And just like God saved his people from slavery apart from any good work, apart from anything that qualified them, In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, God says that it wasn't because they were powerful or impressive in any way, but just the opposite. They had nothing to qualify themselves, but God moved toward them and qualified them on his part. He saved them. He redeemed them. He delivered them. But then just as we thought through the Ten Commandments and the rest of Exodus many months ago, unmerited grace and salvation through the power of God, comes before the law of God in Exodus, not the other way around. It's not their keeping the law that then brings their their redemption from slavery. No, it's their redemption of slavery that then brings them to the law, but the law does come. God would have his people be a holy people. He would have his people be a people surrounded by the darkness, but that they would be a people of light, a people living in the freedom of knowing and living with God, that their lives would be lived fully, in his fatherly sight. Now, Colossians 1 comes to speak directly to every single one of us tonight. Maybe all this is new and you're, for the first time, considering the ways in which your sin, your rejection of God, your dependence on your own resume has left you outside of knowing God. We're glad you're here. We'd love to meet with you online, Zoom or FaceTime or something this week to consider the saving and adopting gospel of God. Maybe you're a Christian, but you are being crushed under the weight of legalism, of thinking that God would love you and accept you if you could just get your act together, but you can't. Like you keep thinking, stop messing up so much. Pull yourself together. This ultimately shows a lack of trust in the work of Christ who has qualified you. A lack of trust that God is a good father who loves you and accepts your scribbled coloring page as a token of love. And he is welcoming you tonight to settle into a fatherly embrace, not trying to earn your way into the family of God, but settled into peaceful living in the family of God. You are a son or daughter through Christ's work on your behalf. Your failure over and over at the tree has been met in love where Jesus would hang and die on that tree. 
the thorns of curse that you have brought into this world, he would take on a, as a crown of thorns into his own head to absorb your sin, to redeem you from sin. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Further up, further in. But maybe others, maybe others here tonight are tempted toward the other direction. Yeah, I know he saved me. I know there's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. So how I live today or tomorrow ultimately doesn't matter. God is pleased with me either way. Well, perhaps now you're realizing that you might have come to Christ for your future, but you really want him to stay out of your present. But what son or daughter who loves belonging to the family? What son or daughter couldn't give a rip about pleasing mom or dad? Not out of fear, but out of love. About living into the family name. The work of your older brother Jesus has given you the family name. Settled once and for all, qualified. Now, live a life worthy of the last name. Not to get you the last name, but because you have the last name. Not to get you into the family, but because you are in the family. Live no longer in darkness, but more and more into the kingdom of light. In obedience to God. Not out of guilt or pressure or fear, but out of love. Walk past the tree of your own wisdom and take from the tree of eternal life. Take from the tree of the wisdom of God. And what you'll find is the fullest most fruitful, freest life you've ever known. The life you were created to know and to have. The life that has been begun now and will continue into eternity. Colossians is so good. Keep reading it. Keep letting it, like we said, not just get under your skin a little bit, but into your bloodstream. Let's pray now that by the Spirit of God, we might be dependent upon him, and becoming more and more into the image of his son, which we'll consider next week on Easter Sunday together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we can call you Father. We have no grounds, we have no resume that would allow us to call us or call you Father if it weren't for your work, your work of adoption. Lord Jesus, your work to live and to die for us. We thank you that you have transferred us from one kingdom to another. You have transformed or transferred us from not being a people, from not belonging to the family of God, to being a people, to belonging. God, we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill us, that you would make us fruitful, that we would bask in the freedom that you have provided for us in the cross. Transform us to the utmost, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.